0: Today's sponsor is Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange. You'll be hearing more about them later on in the show. But for now, it's banking season. So let's get into my conversation with banking aficionado, Chris Whalen. Really happy to welcome back Chris Whalen, a banking expert of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to have you back on Forward Guidance. Good morning. It is a happy morning, Chris. The last time you were on uh, this show... You're on with Joseph Wang. We're talking about the central bank, the Federal Reserve. This time we're talking about commercial banks uh, and investment banks, private banks, banks that are publicly traded. Today, we're record- it's uh, Friday, October 14th, and the big banks reported their earnings. Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, U.S. Corp. And so far, according to just looking at the stock price, the market is taking it in stride. The, the earnings seems to be pretty positive. There's a lot of granularity that we're going to get into. Uh, Chris, earlier this week, you said to me that you were very positive on uh, Wells Fargo and US Bancorp. What in particular, why were you positive on, on that? And then you know, what is the other element of the business that is not doing well?
1: Well, uh, Wells Fargo is the most improved student in the class. As you know, they've had a lot of trouble. Uh, They saw their operating expenses rise dramatically. Uh, They've also been shrinking the bank. And that continues, by the way. Uh, But I think overall, they're starting to show signs of emerging from this long uh, period of punishment and and really unacceptable performance. The uh, growth numbers are good. Uh, They've got their efficiency ratio down in the low 70s. And they need to do some more work on that. But I think overall, uh, you can see that they're starting to turn this thing around. And and Wells is a money machine. They are really good at making money. Uh, But when they got into regulatory trouble, all of that was forgotten. And I think now investors, if you look at the stock, uh, Wells has been performing much better than the other large banks. They're down half as much as JP Morgan. And that's because they've slowly crawled back out of the basement, back up into really where they should be. You know, when uh, when Warren Buffett was heavily invested in Wells, they delivered every quarter. You never heard any noise. You never heard any headlines. That was it. So they're trying to get back to that place. But it's going to be a different business going forward. It's not going to be the Wells of eight, ten years ago.
0: And there's a distinction I want to draw between commercial banking and investment banking. Commercial banking being that old, you know, 1950s white picket fence business model where you take in deposits at two percent and you make loans at five percent and you earn that three percent spread, that net interest margin. And then there is the uh, sort of you know city slicker investment business where you're doing deals, you're you're saying, oh, we're going to issue a bond, it's a billion dollars, we're going to make you a SPAC, we're going to uh, oh, we're, don't worry, we'll hedge your commodity risk, all the sorts of uh, you know high flying, high finance stuff that's investment banking. And both businesses have done extremely well in the wake of uh, uh, since COVID because of just the the stimulus was huge, but particularly that investment banking so much so that like Goldman Sachs now I think is trading at something like a five or a six trailing price to earnings ratio, just because it was making so much money. But so US Bank and Wells Fargo, that would be in the category of commercial banking. But you know, to me, Chris, just looking at these numbers, it's pretty clear to me that the party in investment banking is over. And everyone seems to know it. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, we won't see Goldman until next week. Uh, Jeffries was out earlier, and they're they're down. You know, it's about what you would expect. Jeffries is a very early uh, bellwether for the dealer side of the street uh, that your viewers should always keep in mind. If you want to know how the big guys are going to do, go look at what Jeffries reported because they tend to be the investment banking business, not the the bank business. Um, but what I would say to you is that, you know, the, the investment banks flourished over the last two years. This is why the year-over-year comparisons are so useless. Uh, investors should look at the sequential numbers with these banks because that's how they're going to look going forward. Uh, 20 and 21 were really about the Fed and the way they distorted bank balance sheets. But the key takeaway, Jack, is that quantitative easing did not stimulate lending. And now we see lending going up. Now that the Fed has stopped. So I hope that people on the Federal Open Market Committee look at this and ask themselves a the basic question Why were we doing quantitative easing? Uh, on Twitter this morning, people were complaining about deposit rates, and I think it was Lisa Bromowitz at Bloomberg was saying, Well, you know, when are we going to make more money on our deposits? People don't want, you know, Jamie Diamond doesn't want uh, the guys who are shopping for deposit rates, he wants you to leave. Uh, What banks are going to try and do is build up their traditional base of non-interest-bearing commercial deposits. That's how they make money. That's why U.S. Bank does so well. Forty percent of their deposit base is non-interest-bearing. That's from commercial customers, payroll, all sorts of payments and process. That's how they make money. So I think the, the real takeaway here from these earnings is that you're seeing expansion of net interest margin. The bank side, you're seeing deposits slowly run off, but that's okay. The banks don't mind. Jamie would like to drop half a trillion dollars in assets in the next 12 months at J.P. Morgan. What does it tell you? It tells you that that money's useless and that he can't make money with the Fed reserves. Uh, and I think for economists, this is a big challenge. They need to think about this. Because if they come back you know, in a year or two with quantitative easing, I think the Fed is really going to have to explain why they think that's a good policy move.
0: Right, quantitative easing this increase in the Fed's balance sheet it that's right. floods the banking system with reserves. So if you look at a chart on Twitter, someone posts a chart of M2 or money supply, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, 90% of the time it's going to be M2 and a huge component of that is banking reserves. So that's yes, right. M2 went up 40% in 2020, but yeah, that's it's those banking reserves are quite inert and it's pretty much impossible for you or me Chris or, or any sort of individual to interact with bank reserves and mm-hmm. when the fed floods the system with bank reserves that creates a you know a huge i mean bubble in uh, speculative activity and that's why investment banking revenues were in so high in 2020 mm-hmm. and 2021 but as you say on the other side of the business that old brick and mortar sort of boring if you can call it i know you don't think it's boring uh, business of uh, a of you know having collecting deposits and then lending that money out, quantitative easing doesn't really stimulate that at all. And in fact, over the Uh, past decade after the great financial crisis, the trend was deposits going up and loans going down. But this uh, quarter, we actually have the opposite, where uh, uh, JP Morgan this quarter, loans were up 2% and deposits were down 3% quarter over quarter. And you know, Chris, that's something that you like to see,
1: right? Uh, Yes, because I think as, as you see a smaller balance sheet at JP Morgan, they'll make more money, ironically enough. And you know it's a difficult thing for economists to understand because they always look at the macro numbers. And they figure, well, if I drop interest rates, I'm going to get so much more growth in jobs or GDP. But what they don't understand is that bankers set the coupon on a loan. And if it's too low, they're not going to do it. They might as well just keep their money at the Fed. So there's a disincentive below a certain rate of interest and what we're seeing is that as interest now expands, as rates go up, the banks want to lend again. I've even had a couple of colleagues suggest to me that some of the big guys who've withdrawn from the residential lending market over the years may come back. The guys at Wells Fargo called me this week and told me they're still going to do warehouse lending in residential, even though the media has been reporting that they were getting out. So it's fascinating to see the the evolution here and to see how banks, I think, are going to make more money going forward on their interest rate side. But the question for the future is twofold, really, Jack. Number one, are we going to see loan growth continue in terms of just building balance sheet, right, or maintaining the balance sheet? And second, what's going to happen with credit costs? Because some people were impressed that Wells took provisions up a little. Uh, We could quadruple credit costs for the banking industry, and it would still be historically low. That's how low uh, credit costs were forced down by the Fed's action. So what we worry about is, are they gonna now spring back? You know, are we gonna see credit costs maybe higher than they were at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020? So I think, you know, we're gonna feel good this week, but I feel like the market's probably not gonna take this rally too far, because they're still worried about a recession. That's what it comes down to.
0: CEO of JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, had a lot of comments on that. Earlier this week, he caused quite a firestorm by saying a hurricane is coming and a recession is likely over the next six to nine months. Then he comes out with this phenomenal quarter, so I want to know what's going on. But then in the investor call, he's, he's asked about this and he says, uh, cr- credit car- uh, b- 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 where we are in the cycle credit losses now are not big, exactly as you say. They're actually very, very small. However, and this is something of, an ex- of a quote, um, I just paraphrase. However, it's rather predictable based on how the consumer is spending, uh, as well as inflation, that consumers' balance sheets will deplete by sometime next year. So there's not a crack in current credit losses numbers, but it's quite predictable that will affect future numbers. So is, uh, is there only a light drizzle of, of rain now, but is a storm coming in 2023 when it comes to credit?
1: Yes, I think it is, and it's mostly going to be uh, a problem for bondholders and for non-bank financial companies who are having to deal with the sharp increase in, in funding costs. Uh, it was easy to be a non-bank and to you know, wag your finger in the nose of Jamie Dimon when rates were down at zero, uh, but you know ultimately these companies all fund off the, either the markets or a bank, and in either case they're going to pay more for that money. So I think going forward, you know, we're going to see credit go back to the mean, go higher. I think commercial real estate, uh, CMBS particularly, which is where a lot of commercial loans get sold to investors in the bond market. uh, Leverage loans. Uh, People were asking Jamie Diamond about that. And you know, they sell leverage loans to investors. They sell leverage loans to uh, business development corporations and funds. The banks don't keep too many leverage loans if they've uh, thought about it for a few minutes. Uh, it's just not an asset they want to keep. The banks always keep the good stuff for themselves, and they sell the schmata to the to the investment community, you know. So, but I think this time around, it's not going to be so much about residential housing. It's going to be about commercial assets. Uh, it's always different, and this time around, I think we're going to see a lot of restructuring, much of which you won't hear about. In other words, these are professionals. Uh, the building may be owned privately, and they'll restructure it. They'll have to flip it and refinance it, Uh, particularly in cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, where the urban legacy office space is starting to get filled up, but they've had to make so many price concessions to get tenants into those buildings that the rent rolls are down, the value of the building is down, and so when the mortgage comes due, the bank's gonna want you to put more capital in. A lot of loaners may not wa- owners may not want to do that, Jack. So that's the real issue I see coming at us. You're going to see a lot of restructuring of commercial. You're going to see restructuring of people that went public and were raising money last year and the year before in the non-bank space. Uh, look at the REITs. There's huge value destruction going on there as interest rates rise. So there, there's a lot of things to worry about, and I think Jamie's very uh, appropriately uh, putting that out there for his investors,
0: and those assets that might have to take write downs based on credit losses. You, you mentioned commercial real estate loans, for example. Yeah. Where would they be? You mentioned a lot of banks like to get that off their books if they think about it for a few minutes. That was funny. Uh, so they're they're in business development corporations, ETFs, yeah. investment funds, uh,
1: really?
0: but they're they're not as much on the bank balance sheets. That, that's interesting. Yeah. Did banks sort of learn their lesson after Great Financial Crisis, or is there another reason?
1: There were some changes after the great financial crisis, uh, both in terms of US regulation and Basel. Uh, Really, banks today, if they have a commercial loan, they want half equity in it. So they'll lend you 50 cents on the dollar, but they want you to have 50 cents in front of them to take that first loss. So in the same way, most lenders today would rather sell a mortgage to a commercial building and, and get a fee for arranging it right then keeping oh. it they'll keep some assets on their books don't don't get me wrong they, the big banks need big assets so they look for big buildings they look for big projects to finance but there's also i think uh, an awareness on the part of regulators who have been speaking to the banks regularly about commercial exposures that these things can go down and when you go into a recession particularly uh space that is not a or b that's down the, the scale in terms of quality. Think of 3rd Avenue in Manhattan, from 42nd Street up to 59th Street. Most of those buildings are empty. What are they going to do with them? Maybe the world's largest skateboard park? I don't know. But you know, the, the New York City has to completely remake itself. And whoever owns those mortgages are going to take their lumps. Because if the building's empty and the rent roll is down, the building is worth less money. You know, very simple arithmetic, and again, you can only finance about half of it, so they 'll have a private mortgage on the building, and the developer or the owner is going to have to have equity in it that's the tough discussion that's coming for uh, that's coming next year jack
0: so Chris, if i 'm just looking at the JP Morgan balance sheet now. It has over a trillion dollars in loans. So what, yep. what is the composition of those loans? You know, can we slice and dice it and, and, and can you explain exactly what, what is in that sort of pie? And then where do you see the biggest risks?
1: Well, if you go down the list, uh, about a quarter of Jamie's loan book is in prime, uh, relatively large one to four family mortgages. And then he's got commercial loans, purely commercial, and he's got commercial real estate loans. Credit cards, everything else. So, you know, if you think of it in terms of size, his commercial loan book is, uh, I think, the biggest. And then the, the Resi piece, which they love because they make a lot of money on those loans. Very low credit costs, by the way. Almost no defaults on his book. And yet the Fed was beating him up during the stress tests about mortgage exposures. I still don't understand that. Um, and then the rest of it is what you would expect. JP's a big credit card issuer, but Prime, they're not like Capital One or City um relatively low default rates and so you know a smattering of uh, auto loans and things like that but they they want a prime customer when you look at jp morgan you look at the loss rates you look at the provision expenses what it tells you is that they're basically in line with bank america and wells they're not in line with city you don't compare city to jp you compare city to capital one and american express okay they're in a different business and then U.S. Bank is the main street bank. Interestingly, barely moved during quantitative easing. They didn't get much bigger. they are only $600 billion now in assets. But they now have company in that neighborhood, because Truist, PNC Financial, all of those are very interesting names now. By the way, I've been fairly positive on Truist, because I think they're finally emerging from all of the, the work they had to do with the, the merger between BBT and SunTrust. BBT has always been one of my favorites, really excellent operation. And I'm hoping the truest is now going to get back in the game. But uh, there's this interesting group of half trillion dollar banks now that I think investors ought to focus on more and less on the big guys because there's much more value.
0: So Chris, JP Morgan, which has a very low cost of funds, during periods of quantitative easing when reserves were ample, perhaps one would say too ample, the problem is that they were too big as a bank. Deposits were coming in too fast. It sounds like a good problem to have, but but it was a problem. Now it seems like it's the opposite problem, where the cost of funds is rising. You know, the federal funds rate now is three percent, and it could go as high as. 4.9%, 5% if you look at the Fed Funds futures uh, as of today on the, the 14th of October. So is are banks going to have to start paying that to depositors? And to what degree will that start to become a cost of funds? Like So JP Morgan, it wants to get smaller, but they're, I'm sure our banks perhaps like Goldman Sachs or a lot of fintech companies where that cost of funds is really going to start biting them.
1: Yeah, well, Goldman particularly, you're going to see this with Morgan Stanley too, but they face the market and they don't have a very big bank. Their bank has to pay up for funds. They're out on the bulletin boards competing for broker deposits with Ally Bank, for God's sake. So they're in a very different place than JP Morgan, where funding costs are still probably below 30 basis points for the whole bank versus total assets. Right, That's very low. Uh, The lowest in the group, of course, is Charles Schwab, eight basis points. But they don't take much risk with their bank. It's basically advisory balances and loans to customers, uh, mortgages. They make a lot of mortgage loans. Uh, but you know, I think you have to think about the depositories as one group and the dealers as another group. So Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, even City. City is not a deposit-funded bank. Half of their book is market-funded. So you kind of look at them more as a credit card issuer and a dealer, but without the asset management piece. They're, they're missing a leg of that stool. And I think that, you know, when you look at these guys, I'm not worried about JP and Bank of America and Wells, because their cost of funds is going to up very slowly, even as they shrink. Because remember that money they got from the Fed when they sold their bonds uh, to the Fed and they had a reserve that was created? They can't do anything with that money. It's not like your checking account that they could use to, you know, make a mortgage loan to another customer.
0: Right but but Chris, Chris, sorry doesn't it doesn't that um so banks can create money from thin air that they make a loan like when i buy a bagel i use my credit card and i'm essentially creating money that jp morgan or whoever is, is lending to me the only limit on that is if a, if i buy a lot of bagels <laughs> there have to be a lot of bagels uh, suddenly jp morgan's loans are so big that they're not in compliance with regulatory uh, ratios and stuff like that doesn't the reserves that they have at the fed doesn't that they can count that as, as assets right So it does help them loan in that way.
1: Well, yes and no. It's cash. They can use those reserves to pay for anything. Any other bank that they owe money to, they can shift reserves and use that to settle those uh, liabilities. But they're not going to use that funding as the basis for long-term loans because it doesn't have enough of a duration. It's not going to be around that long. Much of the paper that the Fed was buying, remember, were T-bills. So when the Fed stops buying the T-bills, the customer that originally sold that bond to the Fed and then, you know, Jamie had a reserve account created, right, when the Treasury has to refinance that bond, when it matures, the customer is going to go out and buy the bond and the deposit disappears. He now owns an asset, right? So that's why the banking industry is going to shrink. When the Fed's not buying and Treasury is running a deficit, Treasury has constantly got to refinance that paper when it comes due. And if they're not selling it to the Fed and they're selling that bond to a private investor, then the banking system's reserves shrink. Okay? This is the downside of quantitative easing that is making Chairman Powell and his colleagues on the FOMC so nervous. This is the reason they waited six months longer before they started really shrinking the balance sheet because they're not sure how to benchmark it. They're not sure that a you know point raise in Fed funds is equal to x, reserve reduction. They don't know what that number is for reserves. They guess. They model it against GDP for some reason. Uh, but do they know? No. The Fed made the decision to grow their balance sheet. And that that extra cash that they created and injected into the system doesn't really help the economy. It forces yeah. rates down. It does force credit costs down temporarily, but does it really help me go out and make 30-year mortgage loans or 10-year, 7-year commercial loans? No. It's a different thing. I'll give you another example. When banks plan their assets, when they say to themselves, how many loans of a different type do I want to have on my balance sheet at the end of the year? They have to measure the incoming redemptions from loans that are paid off and then the new loans they make, right? So they're always managing the balance sheet with the ins and the outflows, right? That's not the same as when the Fed is in manipulating the market and putting trillions of dollars of funny money into the system. Uh, Because, unfortunately, it's not the same. When I was a kid and the Fed did anything, they almost immediately got GDP growth. They got employment growth. Now the Fed can go out and buy a trillion dollars worth of securities and nothing happens.
0: And sorry, Chris, for, for not catching this, but why is that the case? Why is the Fed more ineffective now, or less effective?
1: I, I think partly it's just the size of the, the federal deficit and the amount of debt we have outstanding. Uh, the Fed's actions compared to a $30 trillion public debt are relatively small. Think of that. Right. Even with an $8-9 balance sheet, they're relatively irrelevant compared to when I worked at the Fed in New York back in the 80s. If we even picked up the phone, the market moved. <laughs> we, we, we acted all day, by the way. We didn't signal to people. We would do yeah. system RPs at 3 in the afternoon. And the point is is that we didn't give the market guidance. And when we did act, as opposed to talking, uh, we got a lot of movement out of the market. Now that uh, Fed signals everything, I think they've actually reduced their effectiveness
0: hey there hope you're enjoying my conversation with chris just wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by bittrex a cryptocurrency exchange with a focus on security and trust bittrex offers lightning fast trade execution on over 150 different digital assets and is protected by security practices that lead the industry if you want to venture into crypto i want you using bittrex it's an original in the space and has all the tokens that you want to trade so click the link in the description to learn more and tell my i sent you. Now back to my conversation with Chris Whalen. I really just want to hammer home this point about investment banking, which again is Ooh. people in the, the the tall towers making expensive deals. It's both raising capital, which is bonds, raising ca- capital on equities, SPACs, stuff like that, which is more Ooh. traditional investment banking, as well as trading. So that's trading equities, trading derivatives, FIC, uh, fixed income, currencies, and commodities. Of those three things, like pretty much Goldman Sachs, you know, they have Marcus, they have a consumer bank, but you, you said earlier, you know, Marcus. It's not not exactly something to write home about. Um, no, yeah. Um, so Goldman Sachs is pretty much an investment bank, and they're you know one of, one of the best investment banks in the world. Uh, uh, we got we got to put put respect to them. However, investment banking it's a bear market investment banking. Let's be honest, Chris. I was just going through the Morgan Stanley numbers for investment banking. This uh, the numbers that for the third quarter of twenty twenty two. Not only are they half that of twenty twenty one for the third quarter. Again, you're right, base effects. we, sh- we shouldn't put too much, but it's less than third quarter of 2020, third quarter of 2019, third quarter of 2018 and third quarter of 2017. So, I mean, you know, if, if you're people who are my age, who are, are doing, you know, investment banking and they got out of school and there's, it's this really exciting thing and, you know, suddenly COVID happened and there's this huge bonanza, this credit bubble, it was a, probably a good time to get a bonus, but like, it's, it's looking like it's not a great time, you know, for, for, for people working there and for the bank, I mean, is Goldman Sachs just going to totally have a really bad quarter? What, what do you think?
1: I think they could end up surprising people on the trading side because they are good at trading markets. Uh, but in terms of issuance of securities and investment banking transactions, I think it's going to be down like everybody else. And you know, remember, part of the problem uh, that we have with the Fed is that when they drop interest rates, what they're effectively doing is pulling uh, activity, pulling transactions from the future into today. So when you do that and you have a big boom in investment banking business, securities issuance, all sorts of activity over the last couple of years, right? Uh, Well, inevitably, you're going to have a slowdown because all of that business that would have been done in later periods is is gone. And the same thing goes with lending. Uh, You know, the mortgage market's going to probably be down below $2 trillion this year in new production.
0: Which is stunning. Can Can you just give us some context on how stunning a reduction that
1: is, Chris? We're down sixty percent year over year, and we're going to have to eliminate the capacity that allowed us to have those boom years in twenty and twenty one before people can price loans again. every every mortgage loan that's being made today, uh, the issuer is losing money on it today.
0: Yeah, and, and there there are businesses of mortgage origination. And that business, that's their bread and butter. That business is down 60%. I mean, imagine you own a a country store and a corner store and your business is down 60%. I mean, it's it's stunning.
1: Yes, but the smart people in the banking industry and also among the non-banks are already planning for the next thing, which is they're planning for when rates eventually fall and you're gonna see an uptick in volumes. But more importantly, if you're a banker and you've been kind of shy about taking on either multi-family exposures or single-family exposures because the coupons were so low. They were too low versus the risk, right? Well now you're seeing the coupons on those loans double and they're starting to look very attractive. There are a lot of banks out there, including Jamie Dimon, including Goldman, who are going to see a 7 or an 8% coupon on a residential mortgage loan and they're going to want to be in that business. So. There's, there's always two sides of the coin with the street. Yes, we're suffering today, but the smart people on the street, the real operators, are already planning for the next thing. And that's the key. When you have people who are sensitive to what's going on around them today, but are also looking forward. Uh, I always think of my good friend Stan Middleman at Freedom. He looks around corners. And you got to look around corners in this business. What's coming at you next? You know the risks, Jack. You know all the risks, right? But the only question is, what order are they going to be in this time? Okay? You know, we've seen this movie before. We know how money and credit works. But you have the economy, you have the Ukraine, you have all these externalities. But I think ultimately the bankers who are smart are going to take the windfalls they get this year as interest rates normalize. They're going to make a lot of money on net interest margin. And then they're going to think about how do we deploy for, say, 24, 25? That's, that's really the game.
0: And so if I were to ask that question to you, Chris, to see around the corners, what are the biggest risks for the banks? And then what order do you think they're
1: coming? Um, you're going to have credit costs go up. Now, the question is, where? Who is going to be holding the bag when the music stops? I think you are going to see some losses in the non-bank space. I think you may even see some losses in the REITs because interest rates rising this fast, it's very hard for them to deal with that. They don't move that quickly. So to me, the market-facing uh, names that had an easy time of it in 20 and 2021 are the ones who are going to be suffering now. You're going to see credit losses in, in bonds over time. But again, it could take a year for that number to normalize. I, I really don't think the banks are going to be putting aside a lot of money for provisions. The auditors aren't going to let them. Because the losses are not that high yet. That may change, though. And the real issue for all of us to watch, Jack, is volatility. How quickly are credit costs going to revert back to the mean? And are they going to go higher? And how much? That, to me, is the $1,000 question right now. And I'm sure that's what people like Jamie Dimon and the folks at Wells and U.S. Bank are thinking about. They're trying to plan the next four to six quarters and say to themselves, "Okay, if we go back to normal and the Fed maybe keeps... Fed funds at 4 to 5% going forward, You know, imagine if Fed funds has a floor of 4% now, Jack. That changes the world. Um, and I think that's the risk. As we reprice and go back to a period of normal credit costs, I think there could be some bumps in the road. And that's why Jamie Dimon is very correct to be raising that issue with people. Uh, how else are you going to manage the expectations for investors?
0: For our audience, Chris, uh, credit costs, the way that they book that is, let's say a bank has $100 million worth of loans and that's valued because it has a certain implied default rate based on Mm -hmm. historical evidence and and maybe some forward-looking assumptions they would say, oh, actually the default rate's a little bit higher. So now instead of a hundred million, it's worth 95 million. So then they'd have $5 million as a credit cost. And then that would appear in it, the, the net income. Okay. Um, so th- thanks for that, Chris. And now I want to talk about, so that's credit, that's credit cost, but the losses this year in fixed income, has not really been due to credit. It's been doing to the other risk that we haven't had to think about for you know close to 15 years, which is duration, interest rates. If, if you owned LQD, let's say an investment grade uh, ETF that owns investment grade bonds, Yes, spreads above treasuries have widened a little bit, but the real losses is because the Fed has hiked rates and inflation is high and interest rates have gone up. So your 1% investment bond is just not nearly as valuable as it used to be. Uh, And you, uh, in a call earlier, you you said, quote, I think the problem for banks is that the volatility released by the Fed into the market is making a lot of banks functionally insolvent. So tell me about the losses that banks are experiencing on the securities that they own. So far, it's not credit losses, we, we, we know that. Maybe it's coming, I mean, it probably is coming, and we'll see how bad that is. But the losses that have already happened are due to interest rate volatility released by the Fed. Just how bad is that? So I'm talking treasuries, I'm talking mortgage-backed securities available for sale, hold to maturity, you know, uh, uh, other comprehensive income. G- give it to me, what do you think, Chris?
1: Well, under a gap, let me explain this to your, your viewers first if you have short-term swings in assets that you are holding for sale, um, you can basically book that under other comprehensive income. And so it doesn't flow through your earnings per se, because basically the thesis is it's gonna go up and down. It's a number that shows volatility, right? But here's the thing, you have a lot of banks and funds and investors out there that still own production from 2020 and 2021 those bonds are trading 15, 20% below where they came out originally. So there's a huge loss implied here. Uh, there's a lot of small banks who are going to lose access to the federal home loan bank system this quarter because they are book and solvent. In other words, if you look at the mark to market on their assets, it wipes out their capital. The rules for the home loan banks specify solvency as opposed to gap. Okay. And so, sorry,
0: Chris. Let me just explain. So, a, a lot of those bonds would be uh, agency mortgage-backed security,
1: mortgage-backed securities, guaranteed by Uncle Sam. They're, exactly. They're, they're guaranteed friends. by Uncle Sam, uh, uh, in, in
0: word, you know, in spirit, if not in direct law. Um, so, they're Ginny Mays, they're Fannie Mays, and so much production uh, of so many mortgages were made in 2020, and 2021, when mortgages rates were like 2.9 percent or 3.5 percent, and those were packaged into mortgage-backed securities that were, you know, maybe issued at par at a hundred dollars. Uh, now they're trading, those are trading at $75 and there's no market in it because the coupons are so low. So banks have extremely high losses and you're saying some of them are actually insolvent. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, the problem is, is that when you have something, you know, comprehensive income, but it doesn't recover. In other words, the price has gone down and over time, your auditor is going to look at that asset and say, well, it looks impaired. In other words, it's not going to recover back to the original price in a reasonable period of time. In other words, you have no expectation that it's going to rebound. That's a problem because then you've got to write it off. And I think that's the the issue that the street is facing, which is that you have this ghetto created by Chairman Powell and the FOMC of low coupon securities that are very volatile and that no one really wants. You know, the Fed owns most of the Ginny May one and a half coupons, by the way, it's kind of funny. Those are trading in the low seventies. They will never sell securities because there's no one to sell them to. If you picked up the phone from the Fed of New York and called the dealers and said, Give me a bid on ten billion one and a half, they would put the phone down. They would they would just start laughing. Because you know, no one wants these bonds. And that's the problem. If, If you were lulled to sleep last year because rates were going down and down and down, you weren't hedging. So many of these exposures were not hedged. And now you have investors sitting there with paper, in some cases, defaulted loans, for example, that are still government guaranteed, but they're trading in the 70s. What do you do with them? You know, it's a mess, it really is. This again, another downside of quantitative easing when you manipulate the term structure of interest rates and you manipulate credit indirectly by doing what they were doing, you have to pay the piper when you stop doing it. This is why Chairman Bernanke years ago said, you know, if we do quantitative easing, you can't go back. And what he was basically saying is that if they put six or seven trillion dollars of reserves into the system, they basically have to leave them there that's a scary thought but that's essentially where we've gone with quantitative easing because the fed ran out of ideas literally I, that should be of concern to investors because what are we going to do next time are we going to do this again uh, I, don't, I don't think so the banking system couldn't couldn't stand it
0: so chris the losses that investors have had on mortgage-backed securities and by the way you know, mostly it's institutional investors who buy mortgage-backed securities. But for you know, retail investors, uh, one way to just track it or gain exposure to it, again, of course, not investment advice, is something like MBB is an ETF that owns uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities. And then there are mortgage REITs, which actually lever up like four, five, six times and uh, borrow money to buy mortgage REITs. Uh, an example for that is, is Analy, ticker NLY. Again, not investment advice, what happens when the losses are this big? You know, I mean, we, we have a pretty decent understanding of credit losses, 2008, uh, just how severe that can be. But I feel like to, to talk about lo- mark to market losses on fixed income securities due to duration risk, interest rate risk, not credit risk, duration risk, you'd have to go back to the 70s. And, you know, I, I know you probably weren't working back then, but, you know, you're a student of history. I mean, what, what, what can we learn from that?
1: Well, Kidder Peabody, uh, long term capital management. The risk of variable duration securities is, has been a problem for Wall Street for decades. Only this time, the Fed did it. So instead of a, a, a hedge fund or, or someone else like that, Archegos, Chagos, I guess, was an example of this to some degree, uh, getting involved with a security that they don't understand in a low-rate environment, and then rates go up and suddenly the duration of the bond goes from four years which was your typical mortgage security in 2020, to 12 or 15 years today. Well, what happens when a security goes from a four-year maturity to a 15-year maturity? The it price becomes even more down. interest rate sensitive. It's, it's a vicious <laughs> cycle. Oh, well, it's, it's not even sensitive. It's crazy because what happens is that, that security, because it's got a low coupon, low cash flow, is very volatile. And so when you're sitting on a trading desk and you have to hedge your book, it's going to cost you two or three times more to hedge that security than it will, let's say, co- the on the run uh, Fannie Mae today is probably a six and a half. A six and a half is a great security. A lot of people are going to want to own that security. But my point is the difference between the two is like night and day. And it doesn't matter that it's government guaranteed. That's not helping you <laughs> because you don't want to own it. And that's why the Fed is never going to sell any of their mortgage backed securities, you know Chairman Powell will be in a nursing home, eating through a tube, God bless him, and they'll still own those Ginny Bay one and a halves okay
0: one of, one yes. of my favorite lines of yours chris i'm I'm, I'm glad you said it. Uh, I think you first said it in, it in the interview we did with Joseph Wang uh, where we, we talk a lot about this mortgage backed security issue I, th- I think that aired in August of this year on uh, uh forward guidance so with the banks that are functionally insolvent, I mean, are we going to see their share prices go to zero or, or what's going to happen? Describe to me the wrapper, if you will. Someone who owns a lot of mortgage-backed securities and then the assets, value of those assets goes down and suddenly their liabilities exceeds their assets. They are you know, insolvent. Uh, you know, Individuals who don't have protection and can't do sort of fancy financial structures they probably may have to declare bankruptcy, but will some of these banks be able to sort of hide it because they'll put some in hold to maturity, they'll put the good stuff in available for sale? Like Describe sort of the, the wrapping issues and, and how that might help banks.
1: I, I think in many cases, they'll work it out. In other words, the home loan banks will probably give the little community banks a waiver because it, from the regulatory perspective, the bank is still okay. But the trouble is, this is like the s l crisis in the 80s. You have a problem, And if you let the bank just bury those Ginnie May 2s and 1 a half's and and whole loans with similar coupons on their balance sheet, it's going to hurt their income going forward. Because as their cost of funds rises, you know, obviously you're losing money if you're only getting 2% on the Ginnie Mae and it costs you 4% to fund it, right? This is why the Fed is losing money now. Even though they're not selling any securities, the fact that they are paying more on reserves, and on reverse repurchase agreements than they're making on their own portfolio means that they're generating a loss. And the Fed is going to be in a loss position probably for the next five to six years, which means no remittances to the Treasury and political problems, regardless of who's in Congress. So that's what a bank is facing. Will they have a crisis because of this? No, but it will hurt the returns of that bank. It'll hurt their profitability. And you can see this with the REITs. There's huge value destruction going on, both for REITs and also for some banks. And you see this because their book value is falling. In so fact, what would
0: be the most conspicuous example of a REIT? And you know, you can name tickers uh, uh, or a bank that's just had you know, the most abysmal performance because of the, this issue.
1: All of the Resi REITs, I mean, you mentioned Annaly. They mostly hold securities, which is better. But there are a lot of REITs out there that hold, hold loans. Uh, Rhythm, for example, uh, formerly known as uh, New Residential. You know great organization but they take a lot of risk in the market and right now they are uh, dealing with securities prices that are going the wrong way Uh, they're dealing with the fact that they're the biggest owner of Ginnie Mae servicing in the industry Uh, and they got to worry about what's going to happen in that market next year so there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle and all i would say to you is that many of these firms grew their equity in 20 and 21 when the fed had rates really low and the markets were rocking and now they are paying that equity out again slowly and so I think you're going to see a lot of value destruction in the REIT space over the next year or two uh, and what about banks you'll see it here and there some of them may write this stuff off some of them may bury it but you know what if you've got too big of a position in low coupon assets you're gonna have to sell it and take the loss and that's when you'll actually see the capital levels fall because think of it, if you would rather have a 6% coupon on your book and make that income, you may take the pain and sell the twos. You may take the loss, but that's gruesome. It really is, Jack. And, and again, the Fed created this situation. This is not a normal asset liability management uh, question that most banks are prepared for. You tell them the rates are moving five, 600 basis points in less than a year. <laughs> that's extraordinary. And most banks are just not equipped to manage that kind of risk. So essentially the Fed has created a problem for the banks it supervises. That's an extraordinary situation we face.
0: Yeah, and just to explain a point you made earlier, the federal reserve does not have to book losses unless it sells securities so the mortgage-backed securities that it bought at par and now are trading at 70 dollars or 75 dollars, it doesn't have to report those losses unless it sells mortgage-backed securities and by the way it's not selling mortgage-backed
1: securities uh, it's no but they fired. are still taking a loss see when the fed takes a loss this is the idiocy of our congress congress confiscated most of their capital and capped the federal reserve's equity at 45 billion dollars which is nothing um, what that means is that if they if they take a loss, if they're paying more out to people with reserves and they're earning on their their Ginny Mays, for example, then they put that aside in a, a special account, and they essentially have to book profits equal to that loss before they can pay anything to the Treasury.
0: Yeah, Chris, so Chris, pay- Chris sorry, sorry I'm, I'm getting there. Sorry, they, they don't have, so they don't have a loss on the actual mortgage-backed security itself, but because they've raised their own rates and they're now paying more, they're paying more in short-term rates than they're earning in these 15-year mortgage-backed security coupons. So you're absolutely right. Yeah,
1: so- um, And the same holds for a bank, by the way. Banks out there who have a lot of this low-coupon stuff sitting on their books, could be an insurance company, could be a REIT, doesn't matter. You're you're essentially back in the 1980s when the S&L saw their cost of funds go up because of Chairman Volcker but they still had these low coupon mortgages on their book, 30-year mortgages, and they couldn't manage the risk. So we're kind of repeating the mistakes of the past only on a much larger scale.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, if, if I were to ask you, let's take the ticker XLF, which has you know a vanilla representation of typically what the financial stocks are. It doesn't have like the smaller stuff, but it's like Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, Citi, um, all this stuff. In terms of the fundamental... Uh, businesses. Uh, it can be stocks in the XLF or uh, other banks. Which banks do you think are the best, but perf- poised to, to have the best fundamental performance and sort of core earnings in terms of quality of the balance sheet, in terms of low credit losses, in terms of growth, in terms of efficiency, all this type of stuff? Uh, and why? And then uh, which are the worst and why?
1: Well, the market facing banks are clearly going to be the worst. I, I am going to hold my breath and wait for Goldman's results next year, but I'm afraid we're going to see higher funding costs, lower capital markets activities. Hopefully they made money on trading, because they're good at going both ways. The Main Street banks are clearly going to be at an advantage for at least the next year, simply because they don't have to raise deposit rates as fast. Uh, They're going to let deposits run off. They're going to let people that were shopping for better deposit rates leave. They don't want those customers. And they're going to try and rebuild their more traditional base, which is largely from business customers, right? And then the third category that a lot of people don't think about is what I call the asset gatherers. You know, Raymond James, Schwab, even Morgan Stanley to some degree. They are somewhat insulated from the market risk, but they will see their assets under management fall as stock prices go down. So that's a little painful, but you know, my God, uh, Charles Schwab is now the seventh largest bank in the United States very low risk and they're sitting there with 600 billion dollars in core deposits Goldman Sachs wishes that they had a deposit base like that okay so there's really three groups in in banking today the the main street guys who make money on lending have very little securities or market exposure the the universal banks Citi Goldman Deutsche you know all the rest of them in Europe they're going to get a kicking this year because they're going to basically have to give back some of the profits they made in 20 and 21, and then you know the asset gatherers are a happy crowd, um, and they generally just keep getting bigger. Uh, you know, ironically, Raymond James has been the best performing large bank that I follow uh, over the past uh, year, and they're still up for the year. Uh, It's really quite amazing, and also, you know, people like uh, another one, uh, Wilmington uh, Savings Fund. Small uh, bank down in Wilmington, but increasingly getting involved in the mortgage business, securities, trustee, they're kind of coming in and replacing Deutsche Bank in many ways in that business. So there's a lot of names out there I think investors can get constructive on. You just have to do your homework and be patient. These markets may trade off again. If we see recession, they're definitely going to trade off again. But what I've noticed over the past few months, Jack, is that the quality has been resisting the selling pressure, while the the names with more market risk, like Citi, Goldman, the rest of them, they're all trading off. And there's not much they can do about it, because people worry about what they don't know with those names. Even with JP, JP's down still 30% for the year. Wells is only down half as much. And that's partly because Wells is much more of a domestic bank. They have a securities arm, but it's relatively pedestrian compared to their other peers. Mm.
0: Chris, I want to talk about two banks, one of which I know you're very fond of, and one of which I know you don't like at all. The first one is Bank of the Ozarks. What do you think about them and why? And the second one, well, I'll save the second one.
1: Oh, good. Well, I just wrote a piece about uh, George Gleason on our Blog. I've known uh, the guys at Bank of the Ozarks for a long time. I did an interview with George back in 2017 that I'm sure your your viewers would enjoy. He's a bellwether for commercial real estate. He's a $26 billion uh, bank in uh, Little Rock that goes head to head with the big guys in urban lending. Uh, they mostly keep, uh, eat their own cooking. They don't participate their loans out to other banks um and as a result people are often sniping at them and saying oh well you know the economy is going to go in a recession and they're going to be in big trouble and but office manage... you know
0: commercial uh, uh real estate is, is a lot of offices and people oh, you know yeah. I'm at home I'm not in the office yeah
1: <laughs> that's right but they pick their assets well and they manage credit really well they have some of the best credit performance among any large bank in the US so I, I always watch them and I always kind of take it with a grain of salt because they are small And they are playing in a a very big market, um, uh, competing with much larger institutions. But you can't argue with success. They deliver, and they've got a 37% efficiency ratio. I compared them with US Bank because, you know, US Bank is a great performer but it would be unfair to compare the other big guys to bank of the Ozarks because they're much better.
0: (laughs) And efficiency ratio is the sort of cost that uh, are physical costs, like office buildings, employee costs, labor. It tells you
1: how much of operating income drops down at the bottom line, okay? So when you look at Wells, Wells is up in the 70s. They gotta get that number down at least 10 more points. They need to be in the low 60s to be competitive with JP Morgan. Ozarks and the other small banks, you know, there's a number of them that are hyper-efficient, they have to be. They're competing with the big guys. They don't have a funding advantage, but they do price their loans better. Uh, George Gleason gets a point, point and a half more for his loans than the big guys do in similar categories. So what does that tell you? Small banks can price their loans better. Big banks have a much harder time because they're competing with other big guys who are willing to cut uh, the cost of the loan or the price of the loan to get to business that's that's the ultimate uh, distinction so smaller banks really anything from u.s bank on down i think is very interesting because they're going to make money in this environment and uh, you're not worried not so much.
0: you're not worried about the fact that i'm recording this from from my apartment and that a lot of people are still working from home office vacancy rates in, in you know uh the new york city have flatlined and i think they remain below 60 percent mm-hmm. uh perhaps below 50 well, percent i mean it's I, not I it's would... not great People are still paying. No. The companies are still paying, but you know, if the workers aren't there, are the are, are the companies going to renew when it comes up?
1: Well, that's why you when you underwrite these assets, you have to do it right. You have to demand collateral. You know, again, remember, fifty cents on the dollar is the rule with commercial. You want fifty cents of equity in front of you as a lender. As a good friend of mine in Dallas at Next Bank uh, told me years ago, he said, "Chris, if it's above fifty LTV, then." There's no equity. <laughs> and, and that's the right way to look at it. That's a hardcore commercial lender perspective. So, so who's the one uh, you think I don't like?
0: Bank of America. Bro- CEO uh, Brian Moynihan.
1: Yeah, the Bank of Brian. Um, Bank of America has enormous potential uh, if they would only allow their people to go out and pursue it. Uh, you know, Brian Moynihan for the past decade has been trying to avoid risk. And by doing that, he's avoided a lot of revenue. Uh, but I'll tell you something. As interest rates rise and we start seeing mortgage loans with 8% coupons, I'm going to make a prediction. I'll bet you Bank America gets back into correspondent lending and mortgage eventually. They, they're not going to be able to ignore the opportunity, the volumes, and that nice fat coupon. Because uh, you know, if you look at uh, BA, they have lots of resources. They have lots of deposits. But the pricing on their loans is awful. It's the worst in the top five. So they need to get paid better for their loans. They need to make more loans. And they need to perhaps start to re-examine their decision to get out of correspondent lending after they bought Countrywide. That was a terrible mistake. They didn't have to do that. You see, let me give you an example. Jamie Diamond, if you look at his book or if you look at someone like First Republic, what do they own? They own jumbo loans to rich people. There are no defaults in that portfolio that are any significance. That's a good business for them. It fits their client base. Bank America is more of a main street bank. They have to lend to everybody. So what that tells you is that they they need to push the volumes a little bit better. And then I think they'll get better results. But I suspect they've got to have a transition at Bank America before that's going to happen. Because remember, Brian's a lawyer. He, He came up on the personnel side of the bank. He's not an operator. He's not Jamie Dimon. He doesn't understand the business that way, and I think until they get someone like that to run that bank, the, you know, the results are going to be disappointing. Look, he's, he is a good steward. He protected that bank when they were going through hell. All right, The National Mortgage Settlement, they're still litigating, by the way. The litigation from the mortgage crisis continues. So on the one hand, yes, avoiding risk was probably the right decision. But when you got that kind of a bank with that kind of a balance sheet, i think you do have to be somewhat more aggressive about how you accumulate assets how you get earning assets and drive drive profitability there's no reason why that bank can't be at least as good of a performer as wells think of it that way and they got a long way to go
0: chris it sounds like you're somewhat sanguine on The commercial banking sector, just because rates are higher and the Fed's not Mm. uh, sort of has its hand in the trough with with uh, quantitative easing. However, I can ask you: Is there a limit on how bullish you can get on the banks if we're either already in a recession or headed to one? I mean, Jamie said to to a press agency to Bloomberg that we're we're headed for a recession in six to nine months. And if you look, you know, the labor market remains strong. Yes. But if you look at forward-looking indicators like PMIs or the yield curve that's very extremely inverted, uh, shipping prices have f- collapsed, chemical prices, I mean like uh, 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 industrial refining margins are negative. I, it's just not a great, it's not a great global economy. It's, it's, it's not great now and it's very likely going to get less good. Uh, So is there a limit on how bullish you can be on banks, given that banks sort of are at the heart and center of the economy? And if the economy doesn't do well, banks don't do well, and there will be credit losses.
1: Well, the large banks have exposure to the sectors you mentioned. Smaller lenders tend not to do that. They tend to focus on the local community, local businesses. And I think the U.S. economy is actually in pretty good shape. It'll be a long time before loss rates on loans at U.S. banks uh, get high enough to even compared to say 2018, 2019. And what I would say to you is I'm bullish on lenders. I'm bullish on people that actually loan money and have that as a core of their business. The dealer side, not so much because you know they're getting whipsawed. Quantitative easing was great for two years and now it's gonna be awful. The more- so, so, industry, uh, you know, buyers thinking. and sellers of securities, market
0: makers, as well as yes. origination investment banking, which is already uh, it's an investment banking recession.
1: Now, could we see loss rates generally get much higher? Yes, but remember the regulators have de-risked these banks. The banks have been avoiding risk. Where did the risk go? It went into the markets. It went to non-banks. So I think the the pain you're going to feel if we get into a really good recession next year is going to be spread around a lot. And it's not necessarily going to hit the banking sector, which is over-reserved. You know, remember, capital doesn't matter with banks. This is one of the misnomers that you hear from regulators. What matters is profitability. In 2008, when everybody thought the world was ending, you had banks like BBT plowing along, and they almost didn't even—they didn't need TARP—and uh, they were so profitable that they actually waited for three years before they wrote everything off, and the regulators let them because so on a fundamental had basis, profits. BBT
0: very strong in 2008. But I'm going to take oh a guess. God. I'm going to take a wild guess and say the stock price did not do well in 2008.
1: No, because investors, uh, you know, stock investors barely read the first line of the press release when it comes to financials. They don't understand that these are different. Each one of these businesses is different and each one of them has different drivers. So they always paint with the roller when they're talking about the equity markets. The bond market guys tend to do a little bit better understanding these models.
0: Uh, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, getting the chance to, to pick your brain. Uh, yep. People should follow you on uh, Twitter at RC Whalen. And uh, yeah, where can people find more about, about your work, your Institutional Risk Analyst, your bank book, uh, all of which you know, I, I have access to and I, I enjoy uh, very much and adds value to my understanding of banks?
1: Well, my major uh, uh, writing now is the Institutional Risk Analyst blog. Uh, but I also write a column for National Mortgage News, which is great fun, um, trying to defend the industry from regulators. And, um, you know, hold your breath on that one. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on in the Resi world that is not good. Uh, We may even see the Ginnie Mae market get severely uh, impacted by the new capital rules they're trying to roll out. Imagine putting out new capital rules right now. (laughs) You couldn't pick worse timing. So um, there are a lot of issues out there, um, but I think overall the banks are gonna look much better this year and next than they did the past two years. You know, that's the irony.
0: My, my final question for you, is there any publicly traded security, a stock or a series of stocks in the financial industry? It doesn't have to be a bank. It could be a non-bank lender, which have security prices have fallen sharply. could be mortgage originator, sh- security prices have fallen sharply. Is there anyone that you think still remains grossly overvalued?
1: No, the the fintech space is pretty much traded off. If you look at them, um, they Down have 80%. gotten crushed. The REITs, uh, I think, are still a little bit overvalued because, you know, we talked about Antaly, um, and that's because they mostly are owned by retail investors that are interest rate sensitive. In other words, people that would buy bonds also buy REITs. So I don't know that the investors fully understand the risk inside some of those companies because of the big move in interest rates. You know, these are entities that kind of move with rates generally. They are transparent because they have to fund themselves either in the bond market or the equity markets. So when rates move this much, it's it's hard for them to adjust. It really is. And that, that to me is the big question mark. How are they going to get through this adjustment process? And I think the answer is they're going to give up a lot of book value. So you're going to see book value per share on many of these names falling for the rest of the year and into next year simply because The market conditions are not favorable
0: chris my final question for you uh i know you focus a lot on the american banks but credit suisse has attracted a lot Mm. of attention as its share price has fallen it has losses with archaigos it has to sell one of its securitization departments oh this this japanese bank it wants to buy it and then it didn't happen uh the credit default (laughs) swap it blew out from 250 to 600 Uh, Which some some people correctly note is where it was in the uh, great financial crisis. I I think um, a lot of uh, speculation around not only will that stock make it through, but also is it systemic and it shows uh, other other issues within the banking system, particularly European banking system. What do you think?
1: Uh, Credit Suisse is a very important institution in the US. The structured product group that you referred to, I think, is going to get sold. It has both a lot of really smart people, and it has a balance sheet. They do warehouse lending. They fund mortgage servicing rights. They structure a lot of transactions in the mortgage industry, both residential and commercial. So those people are going to find a home. Um, Credit Suisse is not a bank in the US. They have a broker-dealer. And they fund all of these footings on that dealer. So the fact that they have a capital shortfall has forced them to consider selling what is a profitable business. But I think because of the problems they had with Archegos and other things, uh, the Swiss community is basically going to force them to get into the asset management business only and go back to the knitting of being a private banker. Uh, UBS went through this too, you will recall. And all of these banks went into investment banking uh, thinking that that was a good adjunct to the private banking business, and they were wrong. So, you know, I think you know, Credit Suisse isn't going to be allowed to fail. I think it's silly to suggest that. And I also think that they will sell the business as a long line of people out the door. My favorite idea was slamming them together with Citi because, you know, Citi doesn't have an asset management business, but it's a bank. And they do understand the structured products uh, realm, they do understand mortgage. So I think it might be an interesting uh, meeting of the minds, you know but uh, probably not going to happen.
0: We'll see. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for watching.
1: My pleasure, Jack. Thank you.
0: There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward
1: slash newsletter.